Those are indeed precious truths for us to sing and rehearse as we reflect and remember who this great God is and our privilege to gather this Lord's Day to worship Him and to learn of Him. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is the passage to which we should like to call your attention this Lord's Day. The message entitled, When Faith Slips. As you make your way there, we will draw attention. It is October 1st. A new month has come. The significance of this day, twofold. First and foremost, uh, our pastor, Kerry Hardy, is presently in Italy, uh, ministering and enjoying some time with his wife, Pam. Today happens to be the 17th anniversary of Kerry being the pastor here at Twin City Bible Church. We give thanks to God for this date. We also here today recognize today is the seventh anniversary for Pastor Kevin Wong. Make sure you greet and thank him and his family. We rejoice the twofold anniversary of this day. Psalm 73, when faith slips, Let's read the entirety of the psalm, pray, and then ask for God's help as we consider its message. Psalm 73, to put the whole passage before us and in our minds. A psalm of Asaph. Surely, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind, therefore pride is their necklace." The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They've set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they've increased in wealth. Surely, in vain, I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. 
how they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within and I was senseless and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Father in heaven, we bow before you, asking that by means of this psalm, you will help those today whose faith has slipped. We ask this for our Savior's sake. Amen. Polaris is not the biggest star. It's not the brightest star. But it is the surest star in the night sky which is why many have given it another name by which you're familiar, the North Star. A star that is seemingly fixed in its location. And because of its fixedness in the sky, the night sky, how Polaris, the North Star, has served as a constant aid, whether to the mariner out upon the sea, or to the hiker out upon the trail, that no matter where one is, if one gets lost and loses their way, if they but look up at this north star, they can gather their bearings and continue back onto the right path. In the Christian life, there is a north star to which you and I ought and should and must look. That north star would be God in his character, chiefly his goodness. That in the life of faith, as we live upon this earth, those who are true Christians... No matter what we face, if we look up and fix our eyes upon this north star, we're sure and certain not to lose our way. And yet often, as we face challenges, we lose sight of this star, and it's at this point that faith can slip. 
such as the case in our psalm this morning. That in Psalm 73, the author Asaph records for us his own testimony of the very thing that tripped him up and caused him to lose sight of this North Star, and because of it, caused his faith to slip. We ask and wonder, what was it that caused him to be tripped up? Something that can easily trip you and I up? A problem that believers have wrestled with throughout the ages, the problem being twofold. Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? If you've ever wrestled with this problem, you know how powerful this can be. Powerful and persuasive it is, especially as it mixes with the sin of envy. As Asaph will tell us this morning, as he began to look upon and covet the life of the wicked, and as he looked and saw the wicked prospering while he, the righteous, not prospering, rather suffering, that this caused his faith to slip, no doubt as he lost sight of the North Star, God in his character, God in his goodness. We come this morning to listen and learn from this testimony because indeed it's not if, but when faith slips. You might be here this morning wrestling with the very problem that Asaph wrestled with. Yes, in this life, the wicked often do prosper, and the righteous do not. The testimony of Psalm 73 is meant to help you and I as we wrestle with this problem. Again, a problem that is powerful and persuasive in its pull. That as we face hardship in the Christian life, as we suffer and even experience persecution, how strong this temptation can be. As we look away from the North Star, as we look to the wicked and see the life that they have, maybe the life that we once had, and inside there can be that envy, and faith begins to slip, we need this morning to listen and follow Asaph as he walks us on this path, as he even opens up quite honestly about his own experience and what happened, that we then can learn that our faith can be strengthened and not slip. Again, aren't we thankful for a psalm like this? Even to think of the entirety of the Psalter, unlike other portions of Scripture, though, yes, important, inspired, necessary, other portions of Scripture often recording God's mighty acts in history, detailing the narrative, or even distilling truth. We need it, we must learn it. But we're thankful for a book like the Psalter, where it opens up honestly in a real way what often you and I wrestle with down in our heart. That's what Asaph discloses to us this morning. 
as we come to this psalm and as we walk the path with Asaph as our guide, when his faith slipped, do note as he begins in verse 1, he tries to fix certain in the sky, directing our attention again to this north star. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Right off the bat, before we walk through this problem and even feel the pull of its temptation, he fixes firmly this proverbial, axiomatic, self-evident truth. God is good. He is always good. He is all and only good. He's exclusively good, entirely good, exhaustively good. Indeed, his very goodness is unmixed, underived, unmatched. He is always good and he is especially good, he says to Israel. And he'll clarify those who are pure in heart. Namely, the true believer That no matter what one walks through, if one would but look up, they will see this north star, the anchor upon which we set everything. That if we would but remember and look up, we wouldn't be lost and we wouldn't go astray. But it's then at this point that Asaph begins to reveal what he walked through when his faith slipped. In verses 2 through 12, we're introduced to what he will call the trial of faith. Again, throughout this path, this familiar problem we wrestle with, he's going to point us to three sure signs. This first, the trial of faith. In fact, marked out very clearly in the Hebrew text with three words. I'm thankful for the New American Standard Translation. If you look at verse 1, verse 13, and verse 18, surely, 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 him clearly demarcating the signs along the way on this path. I will say I'm thankful for the ESV. I think it's a bit unfortunate that it doesn't bring it out that clearly the way the New American Standard does. But that aside, he says, as for me, the trial of faith, what was it, Asaph? What happened? Again, who is Asaph? Asaph, the worship leader in ancient Israel, the one whom David singled out and brought up on stage to help lead in the singing and worship in the sanctuary. In fact, the very last person we would expect this testimony to come from. We often look up and admire the spiritual leaders, those who have had some years in the life of a Christian and are advanced spiritually. We think they have all the lessons. They've mastered all the problems. And Asaph will open up, I wrestled with this issue. We humbly take this to heart this morning. Here's a problem not one of us is immune from. The trial of faith. What was it, Asaph? He says, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Why? I was 
Do you see it? Envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The time old problem. The wicked prosper, the righteous don't, and the righteous are tempted to look and long and want the life of the wicked. Asaph wrestled with this. The trial that one faces of faith. This is what tripped him up. This is what hurt him as he walked on this path. Even this was the thing that that tripped him up and took his eyes off of the North Star. In fact, the irony, often today we hear people pose this problem. You probably know it. Why do bad things happen to good people? Oh, the world wrestles with that. In the life of faith, it's actually the opposite. Asaph looking and asking, why do good things happen to bad people? And he looks, and it's as if he starts at the end. There are no pains in their death. Seemingly easy, seemingly devoid of frailty and disease. I mean, often you and I, as we are up close with someone dying, even a believer who's dying, who knows for certain where they are going, the trauma, the challenge, how stripping, how searching those final moments can be. But Asaph says it doesn't appear that way with the wicked. When I just look out and observe, it all just seems like they coast into eternity. No pains in their death, and in fact, winding back over their life, their life seems so pleasant, so free. Such that, he says, their body is fat. Oh, you and I think of fatness one way today. In fact, our world loves to think about it, and what, every minute there's a new diet or fad that pops up? Fast from this, detox from that. Everybody wants to be skinny. But if we were to go back to the ancient world, everyone would want to be like this, fat. Why? Food was scarce. Food was a challenge. Day to day, you're barely scraping by. But if you've arrived, if you were one who was prosperous, you would enjoy the luxuries of life, all the dainties to the full, such that one's body would be fat, here symbolizing the life of comfort, the life of ease, riches, prosperity. Free from the terror of death, free from the troubles of life, verse 5. You know, the normal toils, the normal troubles, the daily burdens that you and I often face, where we just day to day are trying to live and survive, even provide for oneself, let alone one's family. Do you know what that challenge is? Certainly in the economy today, many know what that challenge is. Living paycheck to paycheck, wanting to but never getting ahead, just 
barely getting by. But you look out at them. They don't know that challenge. They live, they laugh, they have time for leisure. The hobbies, the trips, the purchases, the toys, their life all so easy, all so carefree. It's as if Asaph has pulled up to the stoplight and the wicked and their luxury vehicle pulls up ahead and he sees on the back of that luxury vehicle, you know the sticker, life is good. And Asaph says, oh, I bet it is. I bet it is. Any inconvenience, any irritation, any annoyance because of their prosperity, they can easily avoid it. Pay enough to get away from it. Let's clarify, it's not that just having riches or wealth is in and of itself a bad thing. No, no, it's not. But here we're introduced further into the character of these people. Again, as Asaph walks through his trial of faith, it is like he's unfolding an episode of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And now we learn a bit more about their character, what kind of person they are. Verse 6 tells us this person, affluent, wealthy, living at ease, they at the same time so proud, so arrogant. How proud are they? they? They wear pride as if it's their necklace. I mean, they walk and strut about life so sure of themselves as if they are God's gift to humanity. And they cover themselves with the garment of violence. They're vain and they're violent. They love themselves and they love to put other people in their place. Cruel, callous, hurtful, Harmful, indeed, here is someone who believes they are at the center of the universe. It's as if the whole solar system and all of its planets, that's the necklace that revolves around them. We might say, here's someone who's egotistical. Here's someone who is a narcissist. That's who they are, and they prosper. They advance. Success after success. Such that, verse 7, their eye bulges from fatness. There again we see it. Prosperity after prosperity, while inwardly the imaginations of their heart run riot. Oh, sinful imaginations. Here is the wicked, they plot, they scheme, they stir up strife and always create drama. Why? Because they can. Why? For the thrill of it. Do you know someone like that? Are you related to someone like that? The ongoing family drama. Do you work with someone like that? 
And to this person, the wicked, life is like a big game. They are the hunter, and the weak, the suffering, the righteous, that's whom they hunt. When they open their mouth, they're like a snake because viper and venom spews forth. They mock, they wickedly speak of oppression. They constantly tear down, they constantly deride. While at the same time, they speak highly of themselves. They speak from on high. Oh, Spurgeon said, big talk streams from them. Their language is colossal. Their magniloquence, ridiculous. They are Sir Oracle in every case. They speak as from the judge's bench and expect all the world to stand in awe of them. Again, do you know someone like this? They're the expert on everything. Their opinion, they try to make your opinion. And if you, heaven forbid, disagree with them, they make you out to be the fool and the idiot. Oh, it goes further. Verse 9, they set their mouth against the heavens. And their tongue parades through the earth. They love to hear themselves talk. They're a spectacle to the heavens. They make a scene on the earth as they're ready to chew and spit out anyone who would dare get in their way. And yet the irony, they're so powerful, though so wicked, yet powerful and magnetic. They are popular. They draw in others around them. Maybe others even afraid, lest they're on the receiving end of that venom. Verse 10, his people, I think even God's people, that's the his, return to them to this place. They even can get sucked in to want to be around the wicked. And he says, waters of abundance are drunk by them. Cryptic phrase, I think put simply, they drink down prosperity like it's tap water. Again, not that riches in and of itself is wrong, but oh, how awful it is when it's joined to a very wicked heart. And that's who they are. And they're advancing, and they're successful, and they're prosperous. And we say, okay, Asaph, I get it. They're wealthy, they're rich, they're cocky, they're arrogant. But he says, ah, they're also religious. Religious, you say? Yes, religiously blasphemous. Verse 11, for the first time we hear them speak, what comes forth from their mouth as they speak from on high? Why, they say, how does God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Do you see who they are? They're a creature made from the dirt, yet set themselves up defiantly against the Creator. Again, in their universe, there is only one God, they being it. And when you faithfully interact with them, when you try to speak truth to them, they take it, they throw it back in your face, backing you into a corner, 
trying to intimidate, trying to belittle, asking and, and wondering, though they know the answer, they've already arrived. God doesn't know. God doesn't have knowledge. They love to trap the righteous. They love to employ eighth grade philosophy. They say, why if God is all good and God is all knowing and God is all powerful, then why is there evil? And as you and I for a moment try to think how to respond, they then arrogantly say, oh, I thought so. And they walk on. They love to trot out God as if he is on trial, they being both judge and jury, subjecting God to the court of a fallen notion of fairness. They are the ones who would say, oh, that Christianity, oh, that Bible, you mean that outdated book, you mean that oppressive book, you mean the book that's been used to stir up so much evil, I would never worship such a God. The one who would say, oh, church, it's just full of hypocrites. All the while overlooking their own life and hypocrisy. That's the wicked. In fact, it reaches this climax point in verse 12. The trial of faith, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They've increased in wealth. Spurgeon says, look, see, consider, here's the standing enigma, the crux of providence, the stumbling block of faith. Here are the unjust rewarded and indulged, and that not for a day or for an hour, but in perpetuity. From their youth up, these people who deserve perdition revel in prosperity. They deserve to be hung in chains, and chains are hung about their necks. They are worthy to be chased from the world, and yet the world becomes all their own. Why do the wicked prosper? And Asaph looks. And Asaph longs, Asaph watches, and Asaph wants, Asaph envies the wicked. Do you? Is there that secret sin slithering inside? This envy, this coveting, I'd never say it, I'd never open up and admit it, but I look, I see the life that the wicked has, the life out in the world, and deep down like Asaph, I want it. And because I want it, my faith slips, I'm tripped up. Even asking yourself deep down, is this really worth it? The path of the righteous? I mean, ever since I've 
committed myself to God and I'm trying to honor him in his word. It's as if there's one challenge after another challenge. But I look out at them and there seems to be no challenge. I mean, you work with people like this, do you not? You, what, as best as you can with the talent and giftedness that you have, day to day, you give yourself, you work hard with integrity, and yet you see the co-worker cheats, no integrity, cuts corners, and when it comes time for advancement and promotion, are you the one singled out and elevated? Often, no. It's the wicked. Could be, as I said, you're related to someone like this. Oh yes, the love for family, but even with family who themselves at this time are wicked, you look at their life, you see one picture, one video after another, post after post, trip after trip, experience after experience, and you just think, is this just one unending life of entertainment? Think even you parents. Here's often where it's tested. As best as you can, trying to honor God and his word and follow what he says and how he says you are to parent and discipline. And day to day, the challenge, day to day, the drain. But you look out, you look over, you see those who give no thought to scripture and it just seems fun and easy and it has that magnetic pole where you're tempted to shut the book, to move on and join in with that crowd. Even to be tempted to just constantly, you know, put a screen in front of them. That you can guard and protect me time. Asaph sees that. Asaph envies that. Could it be that you are there with him? Could it be that here this morning there is some like Lot's wife? Having left the world but looking back secretly, longingly loving it still. Could it be that there are here some like Demas this morning? Who are so loving this present world are tempted to just forsake God forever and latch on to this life. Can we think this in the life of faith? Yes, that's why it's the trial of faith. And Asaph, the worship leader, discloses this is what he wrestled with. And no doubt, if you wrestle with a trial of faith, you'll then see the second signpost, what Asaph shows us in verses 13 through 17, not only the trial of faith, second, the turmoil of faith. The trial is outward, now the turmoil is inward. Note even the shift in the pronouns. As he looks out at the world and wants what they have, He's comparing himself to others in verses 3 through 12. Note the pronouns, they, they, they. 
But now with the turmoil, he turns in upon himself, the focus on self, I, I, I. And these words are shocking, yet again, it's his testimony. He says, verse 13, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. In vain? He says, yes, It seems as if it's all for nothing that I try to fight against sin. What's the point in striving for purity and holiness? Why the concern to keep God's commands? Again, washing his hands in innocence, likely from Exodus 30, what God commanded for those who would enter into the sanctuary, how they were to worship, he being a Levite, a leader in that worship. It's as if he's saying, why do I even bother with God's commands? As I try to keep them They only make me feel bad and guilty. This turmoil inside where I see the wicked advance, the wicked prosper, the wicked have it easy, yet I have it hard. He says, verse 14, oh, even you hear today the talk of mental health. Here's his mental health. I've been stricken all day long, chastened every morning. Torn up inside. Mounting conviction that's making him miserable. And it only starts over each day. Oh, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the trouble with this man, I want you to hear this, The trouble with this man was that his thoughts had been turned in on himself and so had got into a vicious circle. Have you experienced this? You look out and see the pomp and pride of the wicked And their prosperity and how easy it is to swing the pendulum to the opposite but nonetheless equal error. The pride of self-pity. There's pompous pride. There's pouting pity. The problem with both, the focus is still on self Again, these are searching words from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He calls it like it is. He says, we start thinking about things in this way. We become miserable and unhappy, and we do not want to see anybody. We don't want to mix with God's people. We become preoccupied with our own troubles, the hard times we're having, the feeling that God is not fair to us and that we're being treated harshly. We're miserable and feeling very sorry for ourselves. And there we are going round and round in circles of self-pity. 
or we'll even say we get stuck in the swamp of self-pity. The turmoil of faith. And again, what is it that Asaph can do? He seems stuck. He says, verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, Meaning, if I were to open up and say what I'm really wrestling with inside because of my spiritual position as a leader, I know the effect that that's going to have. Behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He understands he can't just say everything that he's thinking and feeling inside. It would be unwise because it could become a stumbling block. And he's stuck and he's thinking and focused on self. And he says, I pondered to understand this and it was troublesome in my sight. Can you picture him, this spiritual leader, this Asaph? He sees the wicked. He wants what they have, the trial of faith. He then walks in his turmoil of faith, day after day, getting up miserable inside. But then at last, there's a break in the discourse. Then at last, it's as if relief breaks in. He says, verse 17, until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then, then I perceived their end. Oh, friend. What wisdom and what wonder from these simple words as he goes into the sanctuary. Then at last, it's as if he snapped out of his sinful spiritual funk. Then at last, he's relieved and brought out of this turmoil and this temptation towards self-pity. And yes, the trial of faith is real. And yes, the turmoil of faith is real. But the break comes and we even ask, what was it that snapped him out? What was it that brought him to his spiritual senses? Two words. Corporate worship. Oh, we need to camp here for a moment. Yeah, he, again, the Old Testament economy, gathering in the sanctuary, the place of public worship, what happened in the place of public worship. Well, though it's the Old Testament economy, and no doubt there are sacrifices offered, there are parallels with what we still do now in the New Testament under the New Covenant with the church assembled. For him then, the law would be read, The law would be explained. The gathered body would pray. The gathered body would sing. The gathered body would publicly worship. Just like you and I today, the new covenant church gathered locally, physically, publicly, corporately, that in ways you and I may never realize God uses corporate worship to help his people. 
Again, often we get stuck in that turmoil of faith. The focus is on self and self-pity. We bring that mindset onto a Sunday, into a Sunday. We leave then on the Sunday, and our thoughts and our comments, I didn't really like that sermon. I didn't really get much out of it. I've already heard that before. I already know that already. I didn't really like the songs we sung. No one talked to me. All the while missing God's intended purpose corporately, publicly, as the body is gathered. That even as we worship Him, that's where the focus is to be. And we bring glory to Him. We sing, as it says in Ephesians 5, we sing to one another. We minister to one another. That when you and I gather and are active participants in worship, actively worshiping, we can be the very means God uses to bring back his Asaphs. That others might be here this morning, their faith slipping, but when they hear the body sing, when they hear the word read, when they hear the body pray, God uses that to bring people to look up again to that North Star. He says, I came to the sanctuary, I perceived their end, the trial of faith, the turmoil of faith. We come at last to the triumph of faith. Verses 18 through 28, what is this triumph of faith? Oh, he finally sees things the way God sees things. He says, surely, again, envy the wicked, want what the wicked want. He says, I see their end. You, God, set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. You're envying them and their life? Are you envying them what they're going to face after they die into the next life? You want the prosperity that they have now? Go ahead, join them. The Niagara River is quite smooth before it reaches the falls. He says, I see their end, and certain, fixed, even though, verse 20, it seems as if God sleeps, he will awake, he will arise, he will act in his holy, just judgment. Such that Asaph then admits he sinned. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. That envy, that coveting, I was foolish and unthinking, like a dumb ox, God. Him even opening up, confessing that, acknowledging his sin, but oh, the triumph of faith. It's not that he just pulls himself up. It's not that there's anything within him. It's that finally, at last, he's directed back to really where the triumph of faith lies. It's object. You see, faith's triumph is found in faith's treasure. God. He says, verse 23, I am continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand. He says, God, 
even at my lowest and my most foolish, when I was sinning and sinning boldly, you were with me, you didn't forsake me, you didn't abandon me. In fact, you've held on to me that I wouldn't ultimately fall away. And you've brought me back, he says, with your counsel, you'll guide me. And afterward, afterward, receive me to glory. Right then, he asks, whom have I in heaven but you, God? Besides you, I desire nothing upon the earth. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is my strength and the portion of my heart forever. Dear Christian, do you realize this this morning? That if you have God, you have all. All that your heart needs, all that your heart could ever want or desire is centered upon, is found and finds resting place in the very God whom we love and live for. And yes, I mean, he's modest, we'll be honest. Our flesh will fail. Our heart will fail. Our bodies grow slow and our minds wear out. And yet God keeps us God holds us. But be warned, behold, those who are far from you, they will perish. You've destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. A warning for any here today who does not know this God. You have it good. You have it easy. You're sure of yourself thinking, I don't need this Jesus I don't need to humble myself and forsake my sin. This passage is meant to bring you to your spiritual senses this morning. That you today would be awakened to run to the Savior to have eternal life. But as for me, Asaph says, and for all of God's true children, the nearness of God is what? It's my good. Do you, see, do you see that, how he's come full circle? He began with the North Star. He lost his way. But now at the end, he finally comes back. The nearness of God is my good. And so I've made him my refuge that I may tell of all your wonderful works. Father, we thank you for giving us this psalm. The problem is timeless. Its temptation is real. Keep us, God, from loving the world and all that is in it. For all that is in the world is passing away. But the one who knows you and does your will will live forever. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.